Very good morning and blessings of the Lord be upon you as we turn to His Word this morning. And again, a blessed Father's Day to all the dads here, granddads and dads-to-be and spiritual dads. Lord bless you. Let's commit this time to the Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and gracious Redeemer, in Jesus' name, Amen. When we last left him, David was living in enemy territory. Because of King Saul's relentless pursuit of him, David felt compelled to go over to the Philistines and lived under the protection of Achish, who was one of the king of one of the principal cities in Philistine. While there, David raided and destroyed enemy tribes of Israel while deceiving Achish that he was actually attacking settlements in Judah. Achish thought David had turned against his own people, whereas in truth, David was actually bringing the fight to the enemies of Israel. But David was playing a very dangerous game. He was playing off Achish against Saul while trying to keep out of trouble from them both. This dangerous situation came to a hit when the combined armies of the Philistines came together to attack Israel, led by King Saul. Akish had David and his men part of his personal bodyguard. At this point of David's story in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 29, the suspense and tension of the situation explodes into the scene. David was marching against his own people. What, what was he going to do? If he joined in the attack against Saul and his army, then David's mantle of leadership over Israel will be forever tainted with the fact that he joined the enemy in attacking his own countrymen. Earlier in 1 Samuel chapter 28, verse 2, we have a hint on what David planned to do. When Achish called David and his men to accompany him to battle, uh, David replied this way, Then you will see for yourself what your servant can do. Achish was quite happy with the answer, but perhaps neglected to ask David, show his fighting skills against whom? Achis had just made David and his men his personal bodyguard, and we are told in 1 Samuel chapter 29 that they were positioned at the rear of the gathered army. That is to say, Achish and his men were the rear guard of the whole army. Given David's cunning deception of Achish over the course of his stay in enemy territory, I, I think it's likely that David planned to turn on Achish in the heat of battle while the bulk of the Philistine army was engaged at the front and caused confusion in the rear of the enemy. In ancient battles, armies quickly fell into panic when there's a rumoured or perceived attack from the back. They did not have modern communications then. Any disturbance behind the front ranks could signal that an opponent, an enemy, had launched a surprise attack from behind. That, in turn, could cause panic and confusion, leading to a rapid collapse in the army's discipline and morale. Soldiers would leave the ranks and flee from the battlefield, and most of the time, this resulted in the army's destruction. Although this is not stated explicitly in the text, I believe this maneuver was what David had in mind. It was still a very risky move as any number of things could have gone wrong with the likely outcome that David and his men would have been overwhelmed and killed for attacking Akish. Even if David and his men managed to get away, 
he would have lost a safe haven with the Philistines while still being on the run from Saul. David, of course, wasn't to know that Saul would be killed that day in battle. So David here was stuck between a rock and a hard place with no apparent good outcomes. But the Lord providentially intervened for David that day to free him from his dilemma. As the combined Philistine armies marched, the other Philistine commanders objected to David's presence, fearing that David would turn against them during the battle. And here, the text indirectly confirms that David was indeed planning this exact thing to betray them. And these commanders compelled Akish to send David and his men away from the army to return to their base in Ziklag. So David here has been spared from a potentially dangerous situation, but an unpleasant surprise awaited him and his men at Ziklag, where, and this is where our passage in 1 Samuel chapter 30 picks up the narrative. When David and his men arrived at Ziklag, they found that it had been raided and burnt to the ground by the Amalekites, one of the enemy tribes, of, uh, the enemy tribes against Israel that David had been raiding over the past year. So this is likely a counter-strike by the Amalekites against David. Up to this point, David had led his men skillfully, navigating the many twists and turns of mortal danger with cunning intelligence and shrewd survival skills. Above all, David was a man on whom God's anointing and favour rested. This resulted in men who had every reason to give their trust and loyalty to David. However, in the midst of their devastating loss of wives and children captured by the Amalekites, the men were so enraged with bitterness in spirit that they actually wanted to stone David. Now, David is no stranger to danger, but this was another different level altogether. It's one thing if a known enemy like Goliath or Saul was coming against you, it's quite another if your own men wanted to kill you. This is the moment where we will find out what David's faith was made of. His faith was proven true many times before, but this was nothing like he ever faced. But 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 6 records for us one of the most powerful moments in David's life. David found strength in the Lord his God. The big idea today then is that we need to learn to find strength in God in times of crisis and difficulty. There are three key aspects of what we can learn about strengthening ourselves in the Lord from David's life. First, about renewing your strength. Second, rebuilding God's people. And third, recovering the loss. First, renewing your strength. Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. As we saw earlier, David was facing the threat of his own men when they turned their grief and rage against him. In 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 6, we read, David was greatly distressed because the men were talking about stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. From a position of great distress, 
David turned to the Lord for strength. But how do we actually do that? How does one find strength in the Lord? Earlier in this sermon series, we saw that David led a God-centered life. David practiced his faith by giving heartfelt, passionate worship to God. He had had an extensive prayer life, as you see from the Psalms. He lived with a God-centered perspective. In other words, he lived life with God at his side and within his heart. David had an intense, ongoing love relationship with God. And his worship life, prayer life, and his God-centered life were ways in which David practiced his faith or gave expression to the life he had with God. Without this vibrant, ongoing faith relationship, it would have been very doubtful indeed if David could have found strength in the Lord at this moment of maximum danger and crisis. The intensity of our life with God is a measure of the intensity of the strength we are able to find in God. Now, God is able. He, he is merciful, compassionate, gracious. God is able to give us strength and deliverance even if we have gone astray from Him. He works in ways we don't even realize or appreciate. But we must not take God for granted. We should not be complacent about our faith relationship with the Lord. Sometimes we have so, so neglected our faith relationship with the Lord that even when He directs our path and provides help, we cannot perceive it. We miss out on what God is doing. David instinctively sought out the Lord when he was faced with a devastating crisis because clearly he had an intimate, passionate faith relationship with God. If we lack this intimate relationship, then we will likely instinctively seek out human or worldly ways of addressing the crisis instead of seeking God first. For us, sometimes God is just a backup plan in case our own measures fail, isn't it? Who or what we instinctively look for in times of crisis demonstrates the true source of our strength. We instinctively hear the voices from the sources of our strength. If my source of strength is in my status or position in a company or organization, then when I'm faced with a challenge or crisis at the workplace, I fall back to the positional or operational authority I have. That is not wrong, but what that means is that the predominant voice I hear when I'm seeking strength is one of corporate authority. And I'm going to address the situation with the authority with which the company gives me. If my source of strength is in my financial resources, then when I'm faced with a problem or crisis, the predominant voice I hear when I'm seeking strength is how much this is going to cost me. Either how much I'm going to lose in this crisis, stock market has collapsed, or how much must I spend to solve this problem. This could well happen in churches as well. If we're faced with a problem or need, Sometimes the first question that comes to mind is, how much do we need to spend 
to address this. Using the talents, resources, and positions that the Lord has given us is not wrong. The key question is, what's the true, strong, what's the true source of our strength? The gifts or the giver? Is it in the things that the Lord has entrusted to us, or is it the Lord himself? If I'm going to use positional or corporate authority in my organization, I must first make sure that I'm acting under the Lord's authority. The predominant voice I'm hearing must first be from the Lord. That way, I'm acting as one under authority of the Lord and not someone who is using positional authority to push through any personal agenda. If we are going to use or manage financial resources in addressing a problem, then we must first ensure that the predominant voice we hear is from the Lord so that we act as stewards and trustees of what the Lord has given us. Our decisions must first be made on what the Lord seeks to accomplish. What is the God's purpose in this? Not whether we can or cannot afford it. Financial planning and management comes as a crucial element, but not without first hearing from the Lord and with much prayer and intercession. I'd like to suggest to you that David's faith relationship had a transformative effect on his life so that when the moment of crisis came, David instinctively turned to the Lord for strength. I believe that on the day when David's men were about to stone him, the Lord strengthened David by giving him the breakthrough conviction that he was going to succeed in rescuing those who were captured by the enemy. The predominant voice that David heard above all the cries and threats of rage against him, the predominant voice that David heard at that moment was from the Lord. And it was the Lord's breakthrough conviction for David. I believe that David received this personal conviction before validating it publicly through the priest that we'll see later. David is able to receive God's conviction accurately at the time of crisis and responded in faith and obedience to God's word to achieve the decisive breakthrough from himself and all his followers. Here's our first reflection question. In what ways are you able to find strength in the Lord in times of trouble? And for those kids who are not part of church school, you're maybe coming in from home or here, how does trusting in Jesus help you overcome problems?
Second, rebuilding God's people. At a moment of crisis, people lose heart and a sense of direction. In the years leading to 1997, Apple as a company had lost its way. From the early success of their Mac computer, the company stagnated and started to regress. In desperation, they turned to Steve Jobs, the visionary founder of Apple, who was fired by the company in 1985. When Jobs came back to Apple, he found that the company had lost its focus and sense of identity. He couldn't make sense of a very messy, complex product lineup and found that customers were confused to what Apple was doing. Jobs eventually did two critical things to turn Apple around. He refocused the attention of the people and helped them discover who they really were and what they stood for. Jobs axed or cancelled 70% of the product line and eventually zoomed in on four key products, their desktop and mobile lines, basically desktop and laptop, if you can say it that way, a consumer model and a pro model. So from all that messy product line, zoomed in on four, only four models out of the original bloated product lineup. And he renewed their sense of mission and values, what the company stood for, which he defined as creating products for innovative pioneers and rule breakers, those who think differently. David's inspirational leadership was even more impressive than Steve Jobs. He turned an angry and desperate mob back to an effective fighting force with a strong sense of mission. When David's men became an angry mob, they lost all sense of identity and reason. And again, David refocused and renewed their sense of identity and calling and mission. Once David strengthened himself in the Lord and received the breakthrough conviction from the Lord, he changed the focus of his men from one of tragic loss to missional purpose of recovering what they had lost. David gave them back their focus and renewed their identity as fighting men and redirected their energies to their new mission, regaining back their loved ones. How did he actually do it? He refocused the man back to God. Remember we covered about what we covered about spiritual leadership. Spiritual leadership is about God. It's not about a personal agenda or ambition of the leader. It is about leading people to God's agenda. With the word of the Lord, David rebuilt a mob of angry, desperate men back into an effective fighting force again with a sense of purpose and mission. We saw earlier that David was strengthened in the Lord by receiving the assurance of breakthrough from the Lord that he was going to regain what was lost. Now, David is going to publicly validate the word of the Lord he received by having the priest, Abaita, use the Urim and Turim kept in the ephod. This was the outer vest of the priest. Now, Pastor Shern has covered this before, that this was one way in the Old Testament where decisions were obtained, most likely by casting locks using the Urim and Tumim before the Lord by the priest. But the key point here is the personal conviction of a spiritual leader needs to be publicly validated by the authority of God's word. 
in the Old Testament, one of the ways was by casting lots, by priests, like in here, or the word of the prophet, or through what was already revealed through the law of Moses. The public validation of God's word through the casting of lots gave David's men the assurance of God's favour and blessing on what they were about to do. David refocused the mind and energies of his men away from what went wrong and who to blame to the breakthrough that God was preparing for them. And this is the key role of an anointed spiritual leader. A spiritual leader never focuses on what went wrong, who to blame. That needs to be addressed, but you need to move your people to God, to God's purposes and the mission and the breakthrough that God provides for us. The, uh, today, the authority of a spiritual leader comes from the complete revelation of God's word in the Old Testament and New Testament. The conviction of God's word to a present situation or set of circumstances comes from the work of the Holy Spirit and prayer as we live daily under the authority of God's word. But again, it's not the personal agenda of the spiritual leader. It is what God is going to accomplish through the men and women of faith. The second way that David rebuilt God's people is to keep the unity of them, his men. 200 of his men were too exhausted to engage in the pursuit of the enemy and were left behind to guard the baggage, while the rest of the 400 followed David in their pursuit of the enemy. After the successful rescue mission, troublemakers in the ranks refused to share the plunder that they had retrieved with those who had stayed with the baggage. Here, David again provides decisive leadership to prevent a rupture of unity, of the unity and cohesion of his men. The instigators were trying to differentiate between those at the forefront who took on the most risk and danger and those in the rear who guarded the home base or supplies. To be honest, that's how the world sees risk and reward. Those who take more risk should have more rewards. But David reminded his men that God's ways are not man's ways. He reminded them that their success, even their very ability to execute their mission, all their rewards that they got from the mission were all due to God's sovereign control and provision. He said in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 23 to 24, David replied to his men, No, my brothers, you must not do that with what the Lord has given us. He has protected us and delivered into our hands the raiding party that came against us. Who will listen to what you say? The share of the man who stayed with the supplies is to be the same as that who went down to the battle. All will share alike. It is the Lord who provisions and enables his people for the mission he requires of them. As long as all are together with the same mission, but with different roles and abilities, all will share alike in the blessings that come from doing God's work. Paul says something similar in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 when, about serving the Lord as a church community with different spiritual gifts. David shows us how spiritual leaders are to build up God's people 
by refocusing them back to God's commands and directions and maintaining the unity of God's people by sharing God's blessings with one another despite differences in roles and abilities as they serve God together. For our second reflection question, how can we help build others up in unity within families and the church community? And for the kids, why is unity important in any family or church? Third, recovering the loss. Once David renewed his strength in the Lord and rebuilt the morale and focus of his men, he is now in a position to recover what was lost to the enemy. When, with God's assuring word, David and his men conducted a successful pursuit and rescue of their families and supplies while delivering a heavy defeat to the Amalekites. God's providential hand was with them at every stage of the mission, from the discovery of the Egyptian slave left behind by his Amalekite master, who then led them to the enemy camp, to the state of disarray and unpreparedness of the Amalekite soldiers. Although possibly greatly outnumbered and physically strained from days of pursuit, David and his small band took on the Amalekites with almost a full day's worth of fighting from late evening to the evening of the following day. They comprehensively defeated and plundered the enemy while rescuing everyone that had been captured by the Amalekites. With God's anointing, David demonstrates a key characteristic of a king, the ability to recover what was lost 
to the enemy. David's greatest son, his earthly descendant, Jesus, the Messianic King, demonstrate this most powerfully in the plunder of our great enemy, Satan. When speaking about his ability to cast out demons, Jesus says this in Mark chapter 3, verse 27. No one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Here, David, uh, Jesus is saying that the, the devil has been acting like a strong man, holding people in bondage and despair. But now Jesus, being infinitely more powerful than the strong man, has bound or tied up the strong man and rescued those kept in bondage. John chapter 10, verse 10 puts it this way. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. The great enemy of humanity, the devil, is a marauding raider, killing and destroying, stealing lives, holding people in bondage and sin. But Jesus redeems those held captive by first defeating the devil and releasing those held in sin, that is all of us. After this work of binding the enemy, Jesus commissions his disciples with power and authority to recover all those who were once held by the devil. The great enemy has been defeated, his power is broken, but he can still deceive, distract, and dispute the truth of God so that people remain in bondage. Disciples are commissioned to bring release by declaring the gospel and doing the works of the kingdom. This continues to be the one great calling of the church, to preach and live out the gospel, the good news that God's own Son has become king over all. The works of the kingdom is to implement the reign of Christ by recovering what has been lost to the devil. Praying for the sick, feeding the hungry, convicting the rich, loving our human enemies, making disciples of all nations. Robbie, Robbie Dawkins' church in Chicago has a very keen sense of kingdom work in rescuing what is lost to the enemy. There was a high incidence of shooting death in their particular area of Chicago. And Dawkins was upset about the way the devil had robbed many lives and eventually led his ministry team on a mission to commit to evangelize in the immediate location whenever there had been a, a lethal shooting. They committed that every time the devil destroyed a life by one of these shootings, they would evangelize and bring to Christ at least three persons in the immediate location of the death. They went out to counter the work of the devil by recovering those who were without Christ to the share, through the sharing of the gospel. In fact, at one point, the police called up Dawkins, the pastor, and asked what he was doing. And when he explained, the police said, please continue whatever you're doing. Right? Whatever the church is doing, please do that because they were reducing the overall crime rate of that area. Just imagine the day when our police and government were called on the church 
and say, please continue whatever it is you're doing because of drastic decrease in the crime rate, dramatic reduction in school dropout rates, dramatic turnarounds for families in crisis under the social welfare department. Not practical, impossible. In the Experiencing God workbook, Henry Blackaby writes this way, when, when you believe nothing significant can happen through you, you have said more about your belief in God than you have declared about yourself. Being strengthened in the Lord leads us to breakthroughs in our individual lives and in the life of the community around us. We are strengthened in the Lord to overcome the challenges that we are facing now or challenges that are coming our way. To build up people around us and to recover and regain what is lost to the powers of sin and darkness through the power of the gospel. I'm going to leave the third reflection point here as a final moment for us to come into the Lord's presence and to open your life before God and we'll, we'll end with a prayer. If you do not yet have a faith relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, I'd like to invite you to surrender your life completely to the Lord. When Jesus comes into our lives, He wants to save, redeem, take back all of us, our whole life, so that we can have an eternal relationship with God. Jesus can redeem and free us from the past. He can redeem and transform our present. He can secure our future. He is the Lord of life. He is our very life. But He must be Lord over our lives, over every aspect of our lives as we come to Him in faith and obedience. So I'd like to invite you, if you have never had that personal commitment to the Lord to open your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, if Jesus is already your Lord, you know that life is still one crisis after another. But here's the key difference. The Lord's promise to us is that He will never leave us or forsake us. The Lord Himself will strengthen us and bring us the transformative breakthroughs we need as we continually trust and obey Him. So let's come before the Lord and at this time I, I'd like to invite you if you have not ever surrendered your life to the Lord to bring yourself before Him now. Lord, you know each and every one of us here. You know what holds us back. You know what we have done. You know what we have gone through. You know the exact circumstances of our life right now. Lord, you know exactly what is going through our hearts and minds right now. I want to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Forgive me my sin. Grant me this eternal relationship with the Heavenly Father, even as I surrender my life to you right now.
Father, there are a lot of us here. There are various of our lives that need to be redeemed back for the Lord Jesus Christ. There are a lot of us here whose families and those around us at the workplace, in the community, whose lives need to be redeemed back to the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, you are our Lord and Saviour. Even as we come before you in faith, we pray that you do that mighty transformational work. We pray that you teach us to hear your voice as the predominant voice as we face the crisis and distress of our times. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, we can put aside all other voices that beat us down, that make us fearful. But in the midst of our fears and anxieties, we pray that we'll hear the predominant voice of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that, Lord, we will hear your voice of healing, of deliverance, of mercy, of forgiveness, of wisdom, of counsel. Because without your voice, Lord, we perish. So, Lord, we pray. Help us hear your voice, Lord. Help us renew our strength in you. And with your power and spirit, help us to rebuild aspects of our lives that are not pleasing in your sight apart from Christ. Lord, we bring all of every aspect of our lives back to the Lord Jesus Christ. And help us, Lord, by your power and spirit to rebuild the lives around us, even as you renew your strength in us. And gracious God, looking only to the Lord Jesus Christ, not on our own strength, we pray that you will help us redeem what has been lost to the enemy, redeem the brokenness of our lives, even as we surrender ourselves to you. For we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.